Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneurs Show, where we celebrate the innovators driving change in the education industry. At Edison OS, we've worked with over 500 knowledge entrepreneurs to turn their edtech ideas into profitable businesses. In today's episode of the Knowledge Entrepreneur Show, we have Prasad Kaipa. Prasad is a former top management thinker of Indian origin, is also a distinguished thought leader in innovation, leadership, and change management. Known for integrating business strategies with insights from brain research and spirituality, he advised 130-plus C-level executives at Fortune 500 companies. Co-author of From Start to Wise, he founded the Center of Leadership, Innovation and Change at ISB and co-founded TIE Silicon Valley's Entrepreneur Institute. Post-retirement, he focuses on nonprofits, education and youth, drawing from Indian spiritual wisdom for inner transformation. With a PhD in physics from IIT Madras, Prasad has made significant contributions as an educator, consultant and author. Hi Prasad, good evening. Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneur Show. Thank you so much for taking time out for this. My pleasure, uh, Jack. Nice to meet with you and meet with your audience. Thank you, Prasad. It's our pleasure. Prasad, just when I thought, okay, you know, all this coaching and, you know, all this CEO coaching, management coaching, all sorts of coaching just started a decade ago, maybe a decade and a half ago. I saw you on your LinkedIn profile that you've been coaching for more than three decades now, maybe 33 years. So how did you get into that that early back in the day? Was that your plan all along? Um, no, it was not my plan all along. When we were in Apple Computer uh, in something called Apple University, uh, there was a person in Seattle who had a company called Executive Mirror. Uh, and... Uh, he was one of the people who gave uh, some feedback to the entire group and he was actually beginning to do some one-on-one -on -one and group feedback sessions and uh, that was to a certain extent in 1989 like a coaching opportunity or a coaching person that i have heard and uh, Similarly, there was a um, person whom I knew. She was a psychologist. She traditional therapy that she does, but she was doing something in terms of executive performance improvements, like a six sessions to help you to be better kind of a coaching. Right. Right. And right around that time, 1990, beginning of 1990, there was an article uh, about just like extraordinary athletes and musicians and actors need coaches so that they will reach the pinnacles of success. Executives also need similar coaching, which is very different from therapy. So uh, when I quit Apple in 1990, um, there was an opportunity for me to jump in right away because there were other people who were asking. So uh, I had a chance to, you know, work with and evolve this field uh, along with variety of other people. Got it, Prasad. So Prasad, uh, you were in Apple for about four years. 
Yeah. And then uh, when you quit Apple, you got an opportunity. But the work you did in Apple for four years, how did that help you get this opportunity? I was uh, I was actually doing various aspects. First, I was in marketing for a while. But when I was in international marketing, to be more precise, international product marketing group, as it was called, we had uh, some sessions that helped us to develop our own team, our own team effectiveness and work effectiveness. Right. And uh, because I was a manager uh, in the international marketing group, I gave feedback to the person who gave this program, who did that uh, program for us called uh, Phil Dixon, who was in Apple University. He was pretty surprised that I was giving feedback on human development aspects of it. And I had some insights into how people, uh, you know, learn and communicate and some of it. When I had, I was exploring different opportunities within Apple, he invited me to come to Apple University. So I worked with uh, and uh, with uh, Phil Dixon as my manager in Apple University because I had the technology background and interest in human development. So they were uh, trying to look at uh, uh, technical training. Uh, they wanted to do big and they wanted me to, uh, at that time, come and head it up. So that's how I went in. But once I went into the Apple University, because it is about, it is not quite a training group in Apple, but it was more about culture. It was about organization development. It was about various aspects of it. And that became extremely important. And then I took it forward. By the way, oh boy, I have to stop again just for a minute. This guy has locked himself out. Or somewhere else. But, uh, that way, the noise also won't come through. I'll check with you. Okay. So, by the way, yes, uh, as we start, uh, one thing: should we sit? He should I sit here? Because he may be doing a little bit of work and some of that. Are you hearing the noise, or should I go to some other place? So it far, is... I didn't get any noise. So far, you didn't. So, and if no. you get a little bit, uh, uh, should I wear a headphones? And so that I let you know, know Prasad, if there is something You'll that's very disturbing, okay, I'll let you know. Then I will stay here until you tell me whether we should go somewhere else. Sure, sure, sure. Sure. Okay. Sounds good. So One you were asking some question. Maybe that question we can connect it to. So you have a way of cut and uh, remove some of the portions, I take it. Yes, 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 yes. I, I, I also make a note just to help them. So yeah, we can start right about now. Yeah. Okay, got it, Prasad. So uh, you said you had the technology background, but you also had interest in human development and all that. So how Correct. did you develop? I mean, were you, uh, was that your hobby? Did you used to read a lot of books about human development? Or that is, is that something that is... Uh, you developed naturally. How did that human development interest come about? Uh, that happened. Human development interest uh, got evolved for me when I was a 
professor at University of Utah. I am primarily a scientist. Uh, I was in uh, optical information storage, you know, which was part of physics. And then I, that similar technologies we were using, we were in medical school where we were using a lot of computational methods and data and all of that type of stuff. So I was part of that. So my work was partly technology in, uh, you know, um, I would put it in technology, though it is a science-related technology. So we were combining uh, how to get scientific results using the uh, computing methodologies. So they were all technology-connected scientific experiments. As we were doing it, my manager, Dr. Ed Haskell, uh, he had a Japanese spouse, wife, and I really was impressed by his equanimity, his ability to deal with ups and downs, and how he handled me even when I did some mistakes or you know, when he and I had some issues. And finally, there was one more thing that impressed me about him was when I got an assistant professor position in some other university because he wanted me to stay back, he went to the uh, director of the division and he promoted me one level above him. Even though he was himself an instructor, lecturer, and he made me an assistant professor. And that putting somebody ahead of themselves was something that really blew me away. And uh, so I asked him about where did he learn this kinds of, uh, you know, egoless way of dealing with and supporting and encouraging and empowering people. And uh, he had told me about a leadership development program he had taken. Uh, And uh, uh, it was a program that Landmark Associates had put together called the Forum. Now it is called Forum. I went and attended that. And in that program, it became very clear to me that there is content, there is process. What you learn as a content becomes data or information or knowledge. But the process you engage in acquiring that content could be considered as learning or could be considered as human development. And I got very interested in the process itself because they looked at how we acquire data from outside world, which is what you call objective data. But my own filters, my own uh, um, beliefs, my own uh, blind spots, and my own aspirations also create certain, what you might call a filter to acquire some knowledge, pay more attention to certain kinds of knowledge uh, and not, you know, ignore some data. That means if I like you, 
I will work with you irrespective of what happens in our relationship for a much longer time. But if I don't right. like you, the first opportunity to break up, I will break up. So like right. that, I found out that there is a inner world and inner reality I am not as familiar with, but I know how to deal with the outer world, outer reality. So the inner development, if you want to call inner sciences and inner uh, growth is something that uh, I was very curious because this program literally focused on how do you develop awareness? How do you really recognize your own being, if you want to call it for a lack of a better world, how that uh, identity which you have, your personality, you know, these are all words that we use, identity, ego, personality. But behind all of that, there is a certain self. You know, we know that we use it, words like Atman, or we use words like consciousness, or we use something like spirit in you, or, you know, there are various spiritual words you can use. But each one of us are bigger than our body. Each one of us are bigger than our mind. And this program helped me to focus on that bigger self of myself. And that really opened my eyes to recognize, you know, I had an opportunity to work with people. We wrote some papers. Actually, one of our co-authors got a Nobel Prize afterwards. So, you know, there was, we did some pretty interesting work in terms of content, you know, and uh, whether it was uh, the work in physics department, whether it was work in the medical school, and we were using latest computer technology, which was just evolving. Personal computers were coming out in 1980s, early 80s, IBM PC and Apple and Macintosh, all of them came out. We were actually pioneers in using that. But more than using the computers and data, how do I use my own mind? Right. How blind to my own assumptions and my own belief system I am? How do I become receptive and open to listen to people of different uh, uh, orientation, different gender, different educational background? How can I be? really learn from everything that perspective is the one that got me to be interested in apple and that even when i was in apple uh, that human development aspect of it i, I should, maybe i should call it inner development right. was something that helped me to go into uh, this training coaching leadership development later in apple so it was it had a, it had a you know uh, seed planted in 1983 and 7 years later i had left my phd in physics i had left my marketing and technology background in uh, apple and i was focused a lot more on human development it, this uh, you had this uh you know, job at the University of Utah, I think you said, 
uh, you know, the teaching job you had. This was before Apple stint for four years. Is that correct, Prasad? Yeah. Correct. And this is the time during which you met a lecturer uh, and, you know, who kind of, you know, put you ahead of himself. He promoted you, which led to your... Okay, I'm just set, just getting yeah. my timelines yeah. right. So Got just it. to give you that, 1981, I came to United States to be a right. postdoctoral research associate in the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Okay. Uh, so at that time, I was in physics department. Right. 1993, 1983, beginning, I went into medical center to work on the atomic, uh, I mean, you know, the uh, effects of atomic bombs uh, in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and, you know, what is the radiation effects of some of that? in 1983 to work with Dr. Ed Haskell. And right. he is the one who introduced me to personal computers. And uh, he is the one who also introduced me to uh, reconnect with all the things that I learned in Indian philosophy, Hindu, Buddhist, you know, the effects of meditation, what I learned in uh, Religion, not as a religious perspective, but as a meditative, reflective, philosophical perspective, uh, that he reminded me. And he is the one who introduced me to this program, which actually they were using several of the principles of Zen Buddhism and, you know, Kashmir Shaivism, but connected with the latest psychology, psychiatry, and they have developed their own leadership program, which is grounded in helping people to discover their inner self and use their inner self to become more effective in the outer world. So so that's how it happened. 1991, University of Utah, 1983, medical school, working with Apple, started as a consultant before I joined Apple. And then 1986-87, I went into Apple and I worked for four years in Apple. And after that, I did consulting with Apple after 1990. But I was pretty much doing a lot of work on uh, human development after 1990s. Got it, Prasad. So, Prasad, before you got into Apple... It was just an interest for you, you know, that you would work along with the technological aspects of your job. You weren't looking it at as a full-time career opportunity and stuff like that. I was and, looking uh, at uh, Apple as a full-time. I was working. I was actually an Apple employee. So I had an No, I meant uh, this human development aspect of it is what I'm talking about. The inner development and the... Uh, that I'm talking, you know, you didn't have that as a full-time career um, aspiration. You were, yeah, was that just your interest in the side? And Apple was your full-time job, you know, where you were focusing on technology. And That's during correct. the job in Apple, yeah, right. You, because of the feedback you gave uh, to someone in the Apple University, that was a turning point for you. Am I correct yes, in saying Yes, Phil Dix, I mean, Ed Haskell in University of Utah was a turning point to move from physics to medical informatics and learn a lot more about computers. And then the next turning point was Phil Dixon asking me to join Apple University, even though I had no background in human development, organizational behavior, where he thought 
i could integrate because i am a technology guy right i could bring in technology and human development together so that right. we could work with engineers you know there were 3000 engineers at that time <clears throat> so i had started something called a school of technology at that time in apple right. university i was the manager of school of technology so for these 3000 people we were going to offer technical training we had even created a with a partnership with san jose state uh, a masters program in partnership with stanford and mit we were offering some online prog programs so i was in charge of technical education and training and development to them but as i was doing that because i was in uh, apple university which is they used to call themselves we are the keepers of the soul that means the apple culture apple values apple organizational behavior some of it is what we were focusing on we were not actually the right. trainers we were lot right. more culture builders and we were trying to look at how to propagate what made apple unique the spirit of apple to be kept alive so that connected with some of these really got me into a completely different direction i was actually thinking because i was as a fellow my job was to look at and i was working with some pretty phenomenal people uh, my partner was a guy called Al, i mean bill atkinson who invented macpaint and who came up with hypercard and later he quit apple and he created um, some things which became a precursor to uh, various ways of uh, you know the internet tools and uh, right. you know the, the phone some of them came about there was a lot of things uh, he called it general magic uh, his company uh, where the communication between various uh, devices and all kinds of and uh, so and then another fellow was alan k who is called father of personal computing so in some respect i was working with uh, um, some of the top people in the top minds i should say in apple and our job was to if we can learn how people learn and how people think then we can develop tools to augment human intelligence of course augmenting right. human intelligence is a word that came after 1990 after i spent time coaching a gentleman called doug ingelbart doug ingelbart is the guy who invented the computer mouse by the way and he is the wow. one uh, who came up with the word augmenting human intelligence but what uh, bill atkinson and myself we were doing was can we design a learning processor that means can we actually understand human learning in a way that we can come up with algorithms we can come up with uh, certain software and hardware that will that will accelerate and amplify human learning like uh, our brain connected with the tools like macintosh and you know now we can talk about ipad and iphone and all of them at that time none of them were there can we right. create something so that human beings can actually you know uh, 
explode in their thinking. So their creativity and innovation with the technological augmentation through Macintosh will allow them to do lots of things that they never were capable of doing it. That was our project uh, uh, guidelines. So I brought in human development aspects of it and he brought in the technical development aspects, Bill Atkinson. So we right. went around and we interviewed like, you know, lots of Nobel laureates, lots of experts, writers, thinkers, computer scientists, psychologists, teachers, uh, because we felt, you know, like the, now the AI is common and everybody knows about what they call deep learning and all of it. But at that time, right. we had some things called prologue and lisp, some of these languages we used to call these as expert systems. Those are the precursor to deep learning algorithms and all of what we are doing now. So there we had to create rules. So if I were to say, you know, the rule number one is so-and-so, rule number two, like how many rules I come up with so that I can make better decisions. So my knowledge, if I translate it into series of algorithms that I could create as a software and whoever goes through that uh, algorithm can actually uh, leverage my knowledge. That's what we were trying to do. That's what we call learning processor by bringing in all these experts and their thinking and creating a learning processor. We thought we will come up with some phenomenal technological tool to do that. I was really, because I was a professor, I was looking at human development from inner development as well as the outer development. And I had, you know, worked in technology and I not only worked from a technological perspective, I also worked from it, uh, from the marketing perspective. So I brought a integrated way to look at that. And Bill Atkinson was a person who worked on neurology. He was a he was going to do his PhD in brain research before he came to Apple. And he's a phenomenal technological genius. He's, you know, father of graphical user interface right now. And so, so when we thought human learning, machine learning, if we can combine it, we can design something spectacular. That was the vision. But wow. uh, at that time, the computers were uh, far behind their... Uh, Algorithms were not that capable. Networking, hardware, software, everything was like billions of times lower capability than what it is right now. So I realized that uh, some of my thinking, you know, about how human beings learn is more emotional and also some of it is physical. It's not all connected to the brain. Uh, it was not all related to neurological processes. So I can't create algorithms out of it. So very right. quickly, when I quit Apple, I realized first I need to understand more about human learning and human development because I'm not an organizational behavior guy. And I learned about learning only because I became very curious about 
through the program in 1983, as well as my research project with Bill Atkinson. That is what got me um, to say after 1990, I want to learn and I want to help other people learn. So helping other people learn could be done by training. Helping other people learn could be through books and videos and teaching. Because teaching is about knowledge development. But training is about skill development. But both of them don't necessarily work the same way. For example, uh, if I, you know, like uh, my friend who is doing the painting here, Anthony, uh, you know, if I ask him, give me the theory of these paints or, uh, you know, uh, tell me what degrees do you have in doing the work that you do, he may not be able to say that. But he tells me proudly that his grandfather taught him the painting and he proudly carries even the ladder that his grandfather gave and I can see there is so much of pride in him and uh, he he wants to do the best work that he can and how does that work come through? Through apprenticeship and through delivering and his skills can be seen by how well he does the job in my house, right? But that has nothing to do with uh, knowledge on how to paint. Now you have YouTube videos. Okay. But YouTube videos will give you skills. But if I read books about painting and how they combine and, you know, the if I go through classes, regular academic classes, which don't necessarily have lab exercises, if you want to call, like saying, okay, guys, now you have four walls. I want to see, you know, at the beginning of the class, how you paint and the middle of the class, I want to see whether your text, you know, your style and uh, your technique has changed. And at the end of it, I'm going to compare it with the best professional painting job. You know, if I were to do that, that means I'm uh, combining knowledge with skills so that the person becomes uh, extremely effective. But what happens is, like this morning in WhatsApp, somebody has sent me a joke, which says pretty much, you know, my mother just tore up my engineering certificate in electrical engineering because I couldn't fix her light fixture properly. That's what happened. So that means what you learn in engineering Sometimes, if they are not actually doing enough of hands-on work and if it is not connected with application of that into real world, then you have the degree, but the degree and that knowledge is completely useless in practicing. Now, came the coaching, the third one that came. While training is about skills, learning in a college or something is about knowledge the coaching is to develop the competence what is competence you may say how is it different from skills and knowledge there are people who have excellent skills but they don't necessarily benchmark themselves against the best of the people or they may not actually like for example a handyman 
versus a professional painter. A handyman charge is per hour because they are not actually doing in a professional various kinds of things and they don't have the bondage, you know, like a bonding, uh, the guarantees, there are training and then they guarantee the work for so many, you know, years and they do, they have a certain recipe, they have mastered it and they have a certain techniques which they use. So they may charge by project. They may say, you know what, to do this, I'll charge $500. Whereas the handyman says, you know what, boss, I will work with you. You want me to do, I know how to do the painting and I'll work with you. And whatever amount of time it takes, you pay by time and money. You, I charge $50 an hour. So if I spend six hours, you pay me $300. Right. Whereas the painter will look at it and say, okay, I charge $50 an hour. But, you know, if I if the customer is not happy with the painting job, I will have to do free painting all over again. That may take additional three, you know, hours. So that means I have in my project, when I charge the money, I charge what it takes. Let us say it is $300 to do the work. But if I have to redo it, I have additional $300. So let us say I'm going to bill him, I'm, I'm going to quote him $500. Right. Because his expenses, his some of them is already taken into account. But for a person to do that, they need to have confidence in themselves. And right. they need to be able to estimate saying, you know, you have a 12 by 14 wall or a ceiling and if I need to paint it based on my experience it may take about a you know two hours to prepare the wall and one hour to paint three hours is pretty good but if you don't have any idea then you can do it so that means competence is not just having a skill not just having a knowledge but to combine them in a practical situation and having an emotional competence and a confidence in oneself in such a way they can say, yeah, I'll take this on and I'll do a good job. If you are not happy, I will keep doing the job till you are satisfied. But you promise me when you are satisfied, you will give me a reference and you will tell some of your friends so that I will get more work to it. That requires a certain amount of not work-related stuff, but a inner confidence. So coaching, I realized, is a combination of training and, and education in one-on-one -on -one context to, to reach a certain goal, to achieve certain result. And that is much, much more satisfying and effective because you can see a person to go from not having confidence, not having skills or not having knowledge to be able to successfully complete that. So that is how uh, I started doing coaching because I began to learn this. Nobody thought about it before because only in sports or music or dance, there were coaches in business context. So we had to come up with a different way of contracting them, different way of charging them. 
and different ways of uh, you know um, creating frameworks and models and what it comes through at that time we didn't have any of this and now you have a coach certification or uh, you go to this and get a master certification or you're a first level certification and then you have seals that you get approved by so and so accredited by so and so but we actually many of my friends started these kinds of coaching organizations and coaching associations and clarification certification accreditation writing books you know marshall goldsmith or laura whitworth or you know all kinds of uh, you know uh, people people who started these coaching companies and that's how the coaching industry began 30 years ago wow <clears throat> okay so uh, prasad i have a question but you know i'm just going to park it aside but you know get back to you know when you got the first opportunity outside of apple you right. were with apple until 1990 you got an opportunity outside of apple so how did that opportunity come about that's one question another is when you are with a company like apple i don't know how big was it back in the day today it's huge and it's a pride in itself for people to be associated with apple how was it for you to go out of a certain uh, kind of you know a monthly salary or an income and to start off on your own so were you confident about doing it or were you driven by passion was it calculated how did that you know pan out basically okay let me start with the second question when i was in 1990 my total compensation was about 150000 uh and uh, yeah around 150 160 if i look at total this year. i was at a director level 43 44 or something they called approximately and uh, When Sorry, quit, when you say forty-three, uh, forty-four, you're talking about your level, age. They call, they call or, Apple okay. grades. Uh, right, right. uh, they called it at that time. That's what it was. It was a company where probably about f- when I started in eighty-six, eighty-seven, about three thousand people, two thousand, three thousand. By nineteen ninety, there were about four, five thousand. I I would assume. Right, right. There were lots of contractors. <laughs> but few employees so in terms of employees i was probably in the first 2 uh, 3000 people who joined apple and uh, now there are hundreds of thousands of uh, employees and uh, this one yeah. but at that time but we had a close interaction i mean we had steve had already left even though before i joined apple you know i had close interactions uh, with steve jobs because um, i was part of what he called wheels for the mind and uh, there was a uh, there was a educational consortium apple educational consortium i was part of it and uh, i had met uh, steve several times and actually on the day he was let go i had a chance to spend a large amount of time with him and uh, in 1985 but on that day in 1980 1985 he was also let go he had started a next company by that time and he was operating from next at that time and uh, so he was not there john scully was the ceo at that time through apple university i had a lot of interactions 
I had opportunity to work with him on his PowerPoint slides and even have interactions and helping him to teach him how to use the PowerPoint and made some presentations for him, prepared some stuff for him. And when I created the Apple University School of Technology, he was the one uh, who supported, encouraged and, uh, you know, uh, kind of started it. So it was a close-knit community. Right. And it was, uh, and also people had a very interesting way of working with it. So if, you know, the job description will be up to, a, you know, let us say 60% of my time might be described by my job. But the extra time I have, what do I do to enhance value for Apple? So right. they looked at it as it is my responsibility to see what needs to get done and do it. So over a period of time, I am actually actively creating my own job in right. Apple. And based on that, there were various kinds of things that could be done. So it was a, it was a very exciting and uh, uh, intense atmosphere. It continues to be intense. I do not know whether it is as exciting now or not, uh, because they have become much, much bigger. They are the largest, yeah. you know, $3 trillion company, first $3 trillion company in the world. So I would assume it is not as exact, exciting. It is much more delivery oriented. At that time, right. it was creative and innovation oriented. Right. Okay. And uh, coming out of there to be on my own was much harder. because. You know, suddenly, I mean, by the time in 1990, um, I had my second daughter. So, I mean, first uh, I had a son and now I have a second kid, a daughter. And uh, my wife was not working at that time uh, right. uh, because, because I was traveling so much before. Even though she's a medical doctor, she had put her career on hold. Uh, and uh, so she was being my partner and a housewife for that matter. That is what allowed me to work intensely on Apple, which I'm grateful for as her support. And uh, so suddenly I'm on the street and uh, now how am I going to put the food on the table? But being an Indian, I had about six months to nine months savings. Savings. And uh, right. I was working with and uh, uh, but I was really excited about continuing to do the research on how people learn, how people think, how people lead, how people communicate, you know, how people innovate and create. These are some things which I was very interested in. I was thinking that I will do user interface design. At that time, that was brand new topic, user interface design. Uh, GUI, the you call graphical user interfaces, yeah, yeah, because yeah. I worked with you know the foremost thinkers like Alan Kay and Bill Atkinson. I assumed that lots of companies would like me to do. I did do some projects here and there on their GUIs and uh, user interface stuff. And then there was an opportunity from Adobe. I used to know many of the people, you know, what you call who started Adobe and some other things. And then they asked me whether I would like to be a product line manager or a director of you know, product management. But only thing is, they told me, you know, I want you to stop 
all this stuff about breakthrough in learning and human development and you know this is too airy fairy for us it's a little too amorphous <laughs> sorry so if you can get down to brass tacks and focus on the product management you know we don't have a problem to match your salary and in apple and we'll give you that but i couldn't take that job because i got too caught up about uh, the work that i was doing in apple so i thought i will do more work on learning and continue to do this i brought people from all over the world the experts you know like media lab media lab director nicolas negraponte was a friend alan k bill atkinson we had sessions on uh, human learning how do we do this i continued the research on learning and development even after i quit apple didn't make much money in the beginning so towards the end of the year when the money became tighter yeah. i began to realize a gig here uh, a gig there i i did do a gig for apple for $50000 to develop some things because windows versus uh, mac, uh, mac that was coming up and there was a lawsuit and then we needed to help apple people to learn about uh, you know windows became very important and windows was using a lot of macintosh user interfaces uh, both actually came from xerox but the way in which macintosh adopted they were copying quite a bit with uh, some other things and then they took some from directly xerox just like we took it so you know in some respects both of us were evolving whatever way we were evolving and there was a big lawsuit so i did some programs on helping people to understand these differences various aspects of it i did some projects when the money was coming to an end i was seriously looking at where do i do more work uh, i had before i quit apple i had also spent some time in india where i was reintroduced to um upanishads reintroduced to um yoga sutras Uh, and then autobiography of a yogi by paramahamsa yogananda where and then there was a book uh, in darshana shastras there is one called nyaya darshanam it's called methods right. of knowledge there was a translation of nyaya darshana into english was called methods of knowledge they talked about how data information knowledge various categories of knowledge how it is beautifully done it's a very very nice work that was there and then there was also a conference on uh, how sanskrit could be used in artificial intelligence languages and there was another one on sense perception in science and in vedanta you know some of these attracted my attention and then i we bill atkinson and myself had gone to krishnamurti jiddu krishnamurti schools other kinds of things also when we were doing research along with nuyeva center for learning all kinds of other things this inner shift inner development and looking at intel intelligence consisting of both inner and outer elements out you know the intellect 
versus consciousness. Some of those were topics that got my passion so much that uh, 1990, you know, as I was doing some of these projects, I got also to start something called uh, Mithya Institute for Learning and Knowledge Architecture. I created it in 1990. And of course, Mithya is a word which is very interesting. Many people mistake Mithya to be lie. They say in, uh, in, in Sanskrit, it means it is between the reality and the illusion. There are some things we confuse between one and the other. That is where actually we can make progress in learning new things. And of course, I called my institute, Mithya Institute for Learning and Knowledge Architecture. People were still struggling with data architecture and data warehousing and information warehousing. And so the question of what I was saying as a knowledge architecture was too far out. I was too much of a visionary. And uh, but when I told them, it is, you know, they were saying structured data, unstructured data, whether I deal with that and how do I map that and how do I make sense of information. I was saying, no, boss, that is not where you should pay attention to. You should actually look at it and say meaning and understanding. And what do I do when you tell me Apple stock today is $196? That is a data point. Right. But if you were to actually follow the high technology stocks and where Apple is and you know where it was and what's happening, then you have information to make better decisions. On the top of it, if you were to look at it and say, you know, this is where Apple is, that means, you know, it has grown a lot in past six months and there are opportunities to grow even more. That means then Apple 15 has been very successful according to the guys who manufacture Apple products are actually, uh, you know, they are saying we are expanding, we are hiring, we are doing more stuff. That means Apple products are selling very well and we are having a Christmas season. Then Apple is going to release that Vision Pro and we know they are working on Apple car. When I have all this information, suddenly I look at it and say, you know what, I should go buy some Apple stock. See, that is the knowledge. That's a decision which we are making. So knowledge is connected with the decisions and actions. Information is only going to feed you so that based on your financial situation, based on how you interpret it and what you do, you can take the decisions. That architecting the knowledge how to make decisions, how to take actions, how to communicate that is what the Upanishads and Vedas and Yoga and some of them talk about. Right. For them, you know, the knowledge that comes through the sensory organs, like what we call karmendriyas and gnanendriyas, all these senses are like data points. But my own samskaras and vasanas, my own experience in life, is the information. When I combine the outer data 
with inner frameworks and having a clear intention, then the data becomes meaningful, right? So that is what I was trying to figure out. So I said to them, learning is connected. Like a learning is what you breathe in. Creativity is what you breathe out. Learning is what you take in and knowledge and decisions are what you make out. So, but I was probably a couple of decades ahead of time. So what it means is I was not able to really work on products and small, small stuff. I could give them bigger guidance. What I realized is the entrepreneurs and the executives I'm working with, I am actually impacting their decision-making, whether to go with a product or not go with the product. You know, like there is a, you know, like a, a guy, a, a guy let, let me not use his last name, a guy called Peter, who used to work in Chrysler, he had retired as a vice president and had moved uh, uh, to San Diego. And he had asked me, hey, you worked in Apple. Tell me a little bit about, is this Apple worth uh, purchasing some shares? Where do you compare it with respect to IBM or Microsoft? And I did my analysis, which I didn't know what he did was he put in some of his retirement money in Apple. And two years later, he made five times and he sold it. And then he asked me again. I didn't know. I said it. And he said pretty much he built a nest egg of 5x or 10x based on my recommendations. But I didn't have any clue nor, you know, I was not a stockbroker. I didn't need to do. But what that allowed me to do was I know how to help people to make better decisions. I know how to help people to make sense of information. And I can look at their inner, uh, what you might call a frame of mind and outer frame of mind. And I can help knowing their personality, their biases, their interests, looking at the outer information, I can help them to make sense of it and make better decisions. That became my coaching. So because I was very good at doing it at a senior level people who are decision makers, who are uh, action takers at a big level of you know, they have a bunch of data, they have a lot of information and they need to integrate it and make a cohesive, forward-looking decision. I was very good at that. And uh, so I ended up becoming what you call senior executive coach. Later, uh, you know, what you call somebody in a newspaper wrote uh, saying that I'm a CEO coach. And then they also said, I'm not just a leadership coach. I am actually an innovation coach. Uh, and those are some things which I began to do. And I didn't know what they were. And I didn't have diddly squat of background in the subject matter they were working with. But I knew the human thinking process. And I knew how human behavioral process because of the, you know, uh, you know filters and hesitations and biases. Not from a psychological perspective, but from a philosophical perspective, from a framework and human development perspective. That's what I applied. So in some respects, I applied Indic philosophy. 
Indian wisdom, Hindu wisdom, Buddhist wisdom. And then I used um, models which are there in the Western management models and brain research. These are three I began to really bring together and apply it in uh, coaching whomever I was coaching. And of course, in addition to coaching, I did some programs. Uh, I was a professor at uh, ISB. I was a professor in Saybrook University. And I did uh, lots of programs in a variety of uh, London Business School, University of Southern California, IIM Bangalore, uh, you know, in Seattle, in Singapore, variety of places I have given talks and courses and uh, training programs for some other people to make decisions. I've done that. But so that that is how my 30 years have passed. Got it, Prasad. Prasad, you spoke about, you know, bringing in the three uh, different schools of or, you know, three different aspects of uh, what is uh, come to a certain thing that you're doing now, which is yeah. uh, the Indian wisdom and, uh, you know, uh, the Western management techniques and uh, also the brain, the brain right. science from the research that's been happening, right? Correct. So, uh, like, when did, like, whatever you're doing now, when did it come together completely? Uh, did you... Uh, you know, because it has to be a gradual process, right? I mean, in 1990 itself, were you kind of clear enough for this? Uh, or, you know, when did it all come together? I think it is over time. First, uh, obviously, it was leadership development. And uh, it was very clear that I was bringing in wherever I was not consciously thinking about, but a lot of research I was doing lot of studies I was doing in Indian wisdom, Hindu wisdom, Buddhist wisdom and all of them. Obviously, that influenced my work. And at that time, the brain research was very primitive because there was no non-invasive brain techniques. That means when I interviewed several of the Nobel laureates, I even spent three weeks in the operating theatres of brain uh, you know, surgeons, well, they were doing operating uh, work in India as well as here. There was one gentleman um, from uh, Malige Medical Center, Neurological Center in Bangalore. His uh, director at that time, you know, spent a lot of time with me here, several people. But in the beginning, because the brain research was only when you have a tumor, and uh, so when they open up the brain, then they try to understand what is happening. And when they were trying to make sure uh, the cancer cells are gone, so they have to they have to take out the cancer cells. But if they try to give a margin, they call it a margin. How much margin they have to cut around the tumor so that there are no cancer cells are remaining. But at the same time, if they go beyond uh, that and if they try to do it liberally, then some functions in the brain, brain will not work. Like, for example, if you take out some parts, suddenly the person will have difficulty to use the left hand or uh, speech or something else, depending on where it is. You know, different parts of the brain, uh, they are allocated for different functions in the body. So in the beginning, it was very difficult. 
but later came fmri you know the various non invasive techniques began to evolve in past 30 years that we could map but even then for example if you try to look at the brain map and say can you see the difference between brain map of a person who has done 30 years of meditation a buddhist monk or a hindu monk uh, what do you see in his brain versus what do you see in a person who just started meditating or who never meditated or a person with adhd or a person with uh, some kind of a thing there were so many things but they could not interpret it and then when they were meditating what was happening when they are making decisions what was happening when they are asked to create a song or you know uh, poetry or when they are asked to read something what is happening so like that over time all the work that has been done about the brain research is actually an interpretation you know of course everything is an interpretation except that as we got more and more data from more and more research where they say oh you know whenever people are more compassionate wherever people are in love whenever people are really angry you know this amygdala uh, this is what is happening or the, this is the s- stuff which is happening in the frontal lobe or there are more and more work that is evolving but brain research is still not conclusive it is only suggestive it is you know directional so i began to follow that significantly and i began to see how much of the research that they are doing in the brain research is tracking what i know uh, from the indian philosophical frameworks uh, i'm not talking religion but i'm talking the frameworks for example when uh, you talk about rama i'm not interested in rama as the dasarata's son but i'm looking at rama as a dhira and there are certain characteristics that describe a peaceful open you know uh, person who is receptive who listens deeply who thinks meaningfully takes decisions in a deliberate but according to dharma when i look at that and i say okay now th- those are some characteristics that only rama has or if we develop those characteristics can we also make better decisions can we also make you know better choices and take better actions that is how i started applying uh, the philosophical frameworks from bhagavad gita upanishads are jataka katha sir buddhist meditation vipassana meditation some of them trying to look at it and say how does that help with the mindfulness or how does that shape our emotional intelligence what do we learn about navarasas and uh, how does that help us to do emotional regulation so over time uh, you know all of these in the beginning they were not coming together over time i began to map and say you know in the western frameworks they talk about all the emotions to be nothing but the brain responses they don't even have difference between um, emotions and feelings 
Some people call emotions the feelings, feelings the emotions. And similarly, the mind. There is no construct called mind other than in psychology, you know, or, um, you know, if you open up a body, you will see the brain, but you don't see the mind anymore. Mind anyway, for that matter. So, so if you look at it and they'll say, mind is what the brain does to the body or interface between the brain and the body is the mind. So similarly, the consciousness. So like that, I began to look at the research in consciousness studies or research in the brain with the Western psychological frameworks. I started applying to my coaching or to my teaching. And as I was doing it, there were more insights that were coming. And uh, sometimes I had to go back and read more or uh, uh, interpret more. As a matter of fact, my wife, who is a medical doctor, sometimes used to say, wait a minute, you're not a brain surgeon. You're not even a goddamn medical doctor. You're making all this talking about the tertiary associative cortex and amygdala anxiety or, you know, prefrontal cortex, PFC. You're saying all these things. This is all theory. I, I, I used to say exactly. The key part is I only know how these are all integrated and I am proposing some theory to when you you are to your to you doctors, you know, because I have done a lot of work with a lot of medical doctors and hospitals and their leadership and looking at it, and I have partnered with um, brain surgeons and some of them. So I I try to say, does that make sense? Can you really check this out? And so we started even doing designing some research, saying, is this coming out of the body? So is it muscle tension? Is it is there a way to check with a heart rate or whether you can look at it as a heart rate variability or you know galvanic skin response of the skin? Or is it coming from EEG? And is, does that show up in EKG? Does that show up in your uh, what you might call blood oxygen ratio? Or does it happen in terms of oxidation? So like that, we began to try to explore over time in the past 30 years what i learned in indic philosophy i applied it in uh, management and what insights i got in management i tried to validate it with uh, brain research or cognitive research also and over a period of time we began to see variety of things coming together and wherever some insights are aligned in practice, in psychology, in neurology, in you know Indic wisdom, then I knew those are probably the practices and those are probably the models that will have a lot more validity. Uh, and I was emphasizing them. If only in Western models they say it, but it is not necessarily uh, validated in other philosophical frameworks or neurological frameworks, then I'll say, well, let us start with this model. We don't have any other data in other models. So let us try this out. If it doesn't, then we'll try something else. So to summarize what I'm doing is it is a continuous research, experimentation right. and learning for past 30 years. So I will not say 
till about 2005, about 15 years ago. It, no, now more like a, almost 20 years ago. I right. could clearly say my methodology is this. But right. only thing I could say in the initial first 10 years was, I know how to provoke you. I know how to challenge you. And I know how to bring clarity to you. And I can help you to see things that you will not, you would not have seen from the same data, same information. I can help you to dig out more insights than you would have brought out. So in that respect, I can help you to leapfrog in innovation or in creativity on your decision making because between me and you, we will be able to make much better thing. And that happened. I worked with over uh, 110, 120 CEOs and CXOs of pretty big companies in Europe, India, and United States, as well as probably 40,000 to 50,000 people who have gone through my programs and workshops and classes and things like that. Got it, Prasad. Prasad, you said, you know, uh, in 1990, when you took a call to leave Apple and then, you know, pursue this full time, one year wasn't easy. Money wasn't coming, you know, as expected. And uh, you did gigs here and there. You also talked about your $50,000 project you may have done for Apple and all that stuff, right? But what you, you know, stepped out for, what you stepped out to pursue, regarding that, if we have to say as a core gig, as a core job related to your passion, who was your first client and how did you manage to, you know, sign the client? As I said, the first client was Apple that gave me $50,000 contract. Right. Oh, that there. was for the inner uh, development work itself. After I quit Apple, they wanted the development between Windows and Apple. Uh, they wanted some programs for uh, Macintosh people to become familiar with both operating systems. What are the advantages, disadvantages? What are some unique uh, distinctions and differentiations between Windows uh, GUI and uh, Macintosh GUI? So we, I did some work with them and I offered some things around that. That was first. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm asking related to the human development work, the coaching okay. thing. Related to the human development program, it took two years for me to get a contract. Wow. Okay. It took, uh, even in 1990, uh, so I was doing some small projects for city of San Jose or Santa Clara County. I even did some programs. Like at that time, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey had come out. Right. And uh, they wanted me to do some programs on that. And I had actually written an article around that time because people came back and said, you know, Stephen Covey is a Mormon uh, professor from Brigham Young University who wrote about seven habits from using the Mormon uh, philosophy. Then the local temple here, Shiva, Shiva Vishnu temple, they asked me, can you write something like that based on uh, Hindu wisdom? Right. So I wrote an article called Art of Accomplishment, Six Principles from Vedanta that will help people to go forward. 
and that became very interesting i mean it got republished in like 15 different newsletters websites magazines and all that type of stuff and right. uh, uh, then they said can you do a program like you know like seven habits of highly effective people so i was doing it for firefighters in san jose i was doing it in you know county of santa clara executives and uh, some local companies some of them so these were like 5000 10000 uh, small small contracts i used to get for the first one or two years it was quite difficult to manage from a 150000 dollars salary to i had come down to 50 60 dollars income uh, and at one time i seriously considered going back to india i seriously realized i may not be able to make it right and, you know and uh, at that time some tax which i needed from retirement money which needed to be, which was still being managed by apple even though i'm no longer an apple employee so they just sent a check to me and said hey you put it in your own retirement we are not going to manage it for you it was about 22000 dollars but it was a perfect timing for me so i went ahead and used it and then later i paid the 10% penalty to put it back into my retirement account but that was useful so in 1992 uh, is when i actually had uh, the money come in uh, in terms of xerox there was a gentleman who used to work for xerox called ravi sahai Mm-hmm. and he wanted me to do some programs on creativity and empowerment right. especially because there was a gentleman called paul aler he became the ceo of uh, xerox in united states and he had put uh, creativity and innovation in xerox to be very high value so they had like a you know employee motivation employee engagement and uh, return on assets and uh, uh, customer satisfaction some of these he had put in so bravisa uh, hai took me to their director of uh, xerox services division and said you know this guy can do you know he was in apple he can do a leader creativity program that will really be very important and it will blow the socks of xerox employees you know this gentleman later he tells me richard dixon was his name he was saying this person ravi sahai is talking so highly of you he said there is so much of hoya hoya there must be a horse here somewhere <laughs> <laughs> you know there is so much of hardship that there must be a horse here so he said okay i will give you a chance why don't you right. guys come in and do a two day program uh, on creativity and empowerment right so we did an experiential program for about 12 people including the xerox uh, uh, you know uh, xerox services director pro sit in there and he really liked it and he immediately said okay i want you to do it nationwide in united states okay how about two programs a month so it is like he signed up for 22 programs or 24 programs in uh, Stamford and Palo Alto and Los Angeles, El Segundo and 
all kinds of places. And they started getting filled up just like that because they're part of Paul Allaire's, uh, you know, company-wide uh, objectives on some of it. And uh, Ravi Sahai and myself, we did that program for almost two, three years. That put me back into a financial, good financial setting, not as a coach, but as a trainer, if you want to call trainer. it. Trainer, yeah, yeah. Trainer. Okay. And as we were doing the programs, they were becoming quite, uh, uh, what do you call, quite a successful set of programs for Xerox. So one day uh, he comes and says, uh, Richard Dixon comes and says, you know, we have a big conference going on. Uh, it was uh, Xerox, I don't remember the, who organized it, but it, it was all the truckers and all the uh, transport drivers who deliver Xerox products all through the United States because right. they had some, you know, big printers, you know, there were uh, all kinds of things they were being delivered. They said, I want you to give a keynote because I want you to be exposed to Paul Allaire. And, uh, you know, this is a keynote address. And uh, how much uh, should I charge for the keynote? They said, how about I'll give you 10,000? You'll have to make do with it. I almost had a diarrhea because $10,000 for a one-hour talk was something more than I expected. And, right. and uh, you know, but uh, that is what it was. So I went and it was a big hit. The talk went off very well. And after that, he said, you know, Paul Allaire works with uh, the re-engineering guy called Michael Hammer and a Delta consulting guy, something else. They are doing something on employee engagement. Whatever they are doing is not working. Aubrey Daniels is also kind of supposed to be doing something on employee engagement. You know what? I want you to go do a facilitation for the Paul Allaire and his staff. Again, he was paying something like $3,500 a day plus for each person so much money it was again so i said what should i say 3500 a day no 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 he said prasad if you do 3500 a day to go to Air, it doesn't work so you need to charge ten thousand dollars a day for consulting so in some respects i had no clue but i got the feedback from the universe and by the way that's what i ended up doing from 1993 94 till i retired I charge the same $10,000 a day rate. I gave discounts for various people, but I never went above that. And, uh, you know, of course, keynote address are something, sometimes I got 25000 30000 when it took two, three days of preparation or something else. That's how I did that. But uh, so um, all my work, everything that I did came together because of feedback from various people. And they saying, this is appropriate. This is the right amount. This is what you should charge. If you don't do this, we'll not hear you. The CEOs won't hear you. So that's how it happened. And then uh, Xerox became a major success. I worked with them till I think for about six, seven years, I did the programs, programs, right. consulting, coaching and all that. Then right. uh, Boeing came about. Uh, mm -hmm. One gentleman called Gary Jusela, who was a vice president, 
he wanted to develop a program for the top 500 people in Boeing because the Airbus was still coming up. So he said, we need to look at diversity, internet-based buying, you know, Amazon and some of that was still coming. It was people still go to the stores to buy it, but they were saying, oh, there is some such thing like you can order on the phone. You can order not just a mail order service. You can actually go on internet and buy things. So all that was happening. And then people were still talking about in the future, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, there will be a video conferencing. People will not get on the plane and go somewhere else. They will just have conversations on the phone and it will feel like as if they are next to each other. They can see the eyebrows. So, you know, that will reduce the need for Boeing airplanes to be bought by airline companies. So we were actually thinking about this in 93, 94 uh, as video conferencing systems to become future competitors to Boeing, not just Airbus, not just something else. So we were developing these kinds of programs where one side is strategy, one side is inner development. Right. So um, I was a consultant for them. And uh, there was another wonderful person called Nancy Bador from Ford. She was the director of executive education center for Ford. She had retired and uh, she, myself, were the external consultants. So we developed some programs that got major hit. So all the top people had gone through, got written up in a variety of magazines and uh, there was a gentleman called Don Peterson, who was previously the chairman of Ford. He was there and he said, said to Nancy, hey, why don't you take Prasad to Ford? Alex Stratman and some of them are needing some help. So I ended up doing some work in Ford. Ford took me to Bristol Myers Squibb, British Aerospace, something else, something else, and Tata Group, Tata Steel. So State Bank of India chairman, so Indian School of Business. One after another, it came not because of what I tried to do or what it was about, but customers talking to each other and then getting the referral. That is how most of my coaching, most of my programs happen. Got it, Prasad. Prasad, you spoke about, you know, doing training programs for two days per month, which led to 24 sessions. And then you spoke about somebody giving you an opportunity to talk for an hour for $10,000, which was the start of your keynote speaking. And then you spoke about consulting uh, and then how they helped you kind of design your consulting so that CEOs kind of, you know, see value in it or, you know, all those things. Now, where does coaching as such fit into the scheme of things? And um, coaching, is it consulting or Excellent point. Consulting is many times for the organizational, you know, culture, groups, developing what is called a OD program, organizational development program, facilitating the top management groups so that they can get. These were not training. These were what they call an organization development program. But when you are doing some of this, Several of the people say, you know, what you said makes sense, 
in the program, but I want to actually dig deeper into it. And I want to learn how to do this. And I want to learn how you how to think about some of this. Like there was one executive in Boeing, you know, who att- attended some of these programs and said, Prasad, I you mentioned something about, you know, Indian philosophy. I, and you said you do meditation. Can you tell me a little bit about it? How will it help me? I'm in a high-stress job. So Liz and I, we spent some time. I uh, spent several sessions. And uh, she said, you know, you're doing some of this work for me. Uh, you know, part of the time you're helping me to design the strategy that I have. And part of the time you're also helping me to 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 think about how to create that strategy. So it is about my own thinking about strategy. So it is called a meta-level skill and you are coaching me to become a better leader. So, you know, I, I have this value. So why not I give you a contract? So you work with me. Similarly, uh, there were other people who, you know, in Xerox, or in other companies, they used to say, I like what you are, uh, what you have taught in a training program or in a facilitation or in consulting. I need you to work with me on this because I need to develop this. And uh, similarly, some other company came up and said, you know, hey, I'm, we are hiring a new president, you know, and uh, like Adobe. Um, was the one and this guy is going to play an extremely important role we are going from selling a product for individual users at home photoshop or something else we are looking at going into corporate sales or we are going into something like a uh, individual shrink wrap packed packages to corporate programs corporate uh, things which will lie on their big machines and when we make changes everybody's software gets updated for this they had hired a guy from B- bia systems or something like that so they said we are hiring him and he is going to be you know one of the guys who can be the ceo sometime later but he's being hired as a president and to help him to become successful, we would like you to work with him and work with us. So I ended up doing a coaching where I was helping him to learn the Adobe culture. And I was helping him to sit with some of his meetings, sit on some of the phone calls. I was sometimes interpreting, hey, you're hearing it in this way. I'm hearing it in this way. Can we check that out? And also, I used to go to Shantanu was another president at that time. His boss, Bruce, was there. And then there were the founders, chairman, and other guy whom I knew. You know, uh, So I was getting some feedback. You know, how is this guy doing? What do you think he needs to pay more attention to? Or I could talk to people below him. So in that respect, I was more of a person who was a coach to help him become successful in Adobe and for Adobe to become 
successful with this guy. Just, you know, I worked with him for six months. You know, just to let you know, after six months and some this one, and Adobe was not ready to move into uh, that at that time. And this guy left. And, uh, you know, uh, and of course, Santanu became the CEO after that. Um, and uh, this guy went from there to some other company and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Microsoft and other companies also. So that was, those are some of the coaching engagements which I was doing. But these engagements were a few because these are expensive engagements. I was charging, you know, $10,000 a month for like a six months of coaching, um, right. you know. So, so company had to pay. And then somebody from Disney came up and said, you know, company is not going to pay you, but I will pay you. Then he said, would you be willing to work with me on a model just like I am in the entertainment industry, we talk about it like agent gets about 10% or 15%. Like that, I will give you 10% of my total compensation. If you help me to become successful and if my compensation increases, then I'll give you a percentage of that. Reason for that was he was not willing to pay 10,000 a month because company will pay. He said, my compensation is only about 700,000. I'll pay you only 70,000. So I was taking like a 50,000 cut from my regular thing. But at the end of it, if I get bonus, if I get promotion, all of it, then you will make a lot more money. So I worked with uh, him on that. So like that, different people and entrepreneurs in the Silicon Valley. I had started by that time something called a Thai Institute uh, with a couple of other people. Kailash Joshi is the guy who had encouraged me. And uh, so we created something called a Thai Institute that helps soft skills for uh, entrepreneurs uh, right. in the Thai entrepreneur in Thai uh, ecosystem. I was doing it completely for free, and we were doing programs. We had CK Prala, we had several other people come and do and teach these entrepreneurs negotiation skills, communication skills, you know, um, partnership skills, team building skills all of that. So there were a few entrepreneurs who were coming to me and say, you know, I can't pay that kind of rate. I'll give you half cash and half in stock. Yeah. And uh, so if I become successful and if the company goes public or company gets bought, your stock will be much more valuable. I have worked with 20, 30, 40 of the people at a much less compensation to help those people like that. So coaching came about with the different business models, different right. ways of doing it, it came. But later in uh, 2000 plus, it got more reorganized. Coaching became, that means it's only soft skills. And then there was something like a directive coaching, non-directive coaching, and then brain-based coaching, psychology-based coaching, and then there became certifications, accreditations, uh, and uh, you know various things evolved over a period of time. But I have seen through, and I have uh, spent my life through looking at various types. It is interesting you uh, spoke about how some people couldn't afford 
uh, what you were charging and since you know they said you know what with my growth you will grow uh, which kind of you know ties you up to a certain Correct. it's a goal oriented because i was going to ask you prasad so i mean all of us are working with some kpis or kras and all those things like how was yours measured what was i was going to ask but i think you already kind of uh, told uh, yeah. how you know some people directly and it's great that you know you took it up and uh, how what was your success rate in those kind of engagements prasad less than 50% maybe 40% okay. because okay. most people want a coach and they want to listen but they won't follow it they won't practice it because right. sometimes the feedback <laughs> that i give might not fit in with their mental models might not fit in with their view or their perspective or their goals and also sometimes they may not be easily translatable mm. and uh, i the insight you may say you know find out this from your team and then report it to boss and this might actually help you but boss might not give too much value to that particular one so like that there are different people do different type of things and uh, it might not fit the various images and it might not go with god it prasad uh, thank you you know for just very uh, as a matter of fact sharing that uh, your success rate i mean i didn't expect the success rate to be 100% obviously but uh, 50% 40% now i mean did that affect your business in any way because you know you were working with the executives world wasn't too big maybe it was a small world and word would be passed and stuff like that did it affect your business in any way your engagements your client acquisition one thing i found is i had to be honest see it is easy to say oh everybody whom i worked with are doing exceedingly well that would be lying through my teeth right number 2 if i am not authentic how can i expect authenticity from you that is right. number 2 third one is if i am so successful all my people should be really top leaders they are not so in some respects it is important to recognize that uh, you can only do so much and also you know i spend maybe an hour or two per week they have 24 by 7 so many hours to assume that my one hour two hour coaching will affect them every week week after week so much without i getting all the feedback and i really managing them it won't happen the third thing i also found is in the beginning i used to only work with the client later i realized if i want to be effective i need to actually not only work with the client if there is that's a ceo i used to work with their board the manager uh, or the chair board members hr person sometimes people below them so the metrics accuracy kpis as you look at various things i also try to evolve work you know i may be working with you 
but your ecosystem has to recognize your work and changes you have to do. So we started doing, uh, before I start coaching you, I will do some interviews and I'll find out what are three things that you need to change for you to become better and what are some three strengths you may or may not be using. So through those dozen interviews, I used to get a lot of material. And then I, I ask you, I interview you, I ask you the same questions. Then I will know how much of what other people say you are aware of and right. how much you are not aware of, how much you are discounting, how much you are, uh, you know, you have self-perception, others' perception, I could do. So over a period of time, I have evolved a different, different ways and then bringing in the Indian models, bringing in the brain models, I made so many changes. So I found I had to be realistic about, you know, even if very successful people like a state bank chairman, OP, but I used to work with significantly from 2005 to 2010, he was spectacularly successful. State bank was spectacularly successful. But right. can I take credit for all his growth? No, I won't. I had a role to play. But as a coach, I need to be very clear that I influence his mindset and his direction and I may get him into some direct some areas there where he won't get by himself. But the person has already the potential and has the capability. I can only fine-tune. It is like a diamond that needs to be you know, polished. I'm a diamond polisher. Right. I cannot take uh, credit for the value of the diamond. My my polishing will help significantly. Right. But the value right. of the diamond doesn't come from my polishing. Great. Great, Prasad. Prasad, so from what I've listened to you, it it came across to me, please correct me if I'm wrong, that finding clients or working with clients came uh, via your network, word of mouth, references and all that. Am I correct yes. in assuming that? Or did you have any other methods of client acquisition? I had uh, majority of the came, majority of them came either through referrals. Right. I also wrote uh, several articles in industry publications. I gave a lot of talks uh, in industry groups and in companies out of them and keynotes i wrote a couple of books um, from smartwise became significant success and translated into multiple languages um, you know so you know from various kinds of books articles talks uh, what you call uh, referrals these are some things and of course i used to be part of various organizations in, like I was on the board of uh, Society for Organizational Learning that Peter Senge had started. I was right. on his board for several years. International Leadership Association board I was on. So, you know, so like that, in addition to the kind of organizations like Samskrita Bharati and Yoga Bharati and some of them, I had been on the board of uh, what you call groups, associations and other kinds of things. That also helped a lot. Got it, Prasad. And Prasad, today, uh, what do you do? Uh, are you still actively actively involved with CEOs coaching them? 
or what are you doing today and you help people become coaches like yourself i retired from coaching and teaching and consulting about 5 years ago right uh, i was thinking that i will do you know other activities like i love music i love playing table tennis i do a lot of hiking these are what i thought will occupy my time but uh, indic academy founder harikiran vadlamani uh, he was planning to attend my program which i did in isb for indian school of business for several years almost uh, from 2006 to 2019 we used to do two or three sessions a year uh, discovering your personal dna and transformational leadership program so hundreds of senior leaders attended that program it's a pretty in depth four day program and uh, i used to advertise it as bringing indic wisdom brain research along with the western management methodology so that indian leaders and uh, other people can actually look at their own mindsets and their own ways of being integrated with western ways of managing right so he was saying hey now that you retired how about you create a masters program masters level program you can call it a master class to coaches because they have brain based coaching they have some other kind of coaching but how about you do a coach development program a year long program that will help them to become better coaches so myself and uh, ragu anantanarayan uh, who has done a lot of work in india uh, as a you know a, what do you call it he has developed several programs mahabharata immersion yoga sutra related stuff he works with tcs and several other companies he has written several books as well and himself myself and one sai sampad who is actually a brahmachari in a uh, kerala ashram and he has been for more than 25 years he has been a monk right and he has a xlri master mba program and he worked with uh, ragu quite a bit and he he came in three of us worked together we started something called a center for consciousness studies and inner transformation because ultimately if you want to bring the indian wisdom what it can do in the age of ai that we live in is how do you use your inner intelligence with outer intelligence because trying to show off who is the smartest those days are gone because whoever uses the chat gpt or bard or you know perplexity or whatever they will always have latest information more richer more wholesome information but what do you do with that data and information how do you frame that is still going to be requiring inner intelligence emotional yep. intelligence mindfulness consciousness and innovation that you can bring in so we thought focusing on you know inner transformation so we wanted to develop coaches who are senior coaches so that means we wanted to take people who have been in their practice for a long time who have been master coaches or who have all these pcc acc or whatever 
credentials they have from the coaching institutes. But if they want to know themselves right. so that their gravitas can increase, their executive presence can increase, and their because of their knowing themselves, they can help their clients to know themselves a lot better. Right. So we started experimenting three years ago, four, all three, three and a half years ago now, uh, with uh, HR vice presidents, professors from India, United States, coaches, all kinds of people. Right. We found uh, significant success in bringing in uh, the uh, yogic perspectives, dance perspectives, Vedanta perspectives, integrated with whatever we are doing. So now we talk about inner presence as a way of branding what we are doing. You know, because inner presence will bring outer presence and outer impact. It will do. Yeah. So we have like a four modules, like a year-long thing, awakening inner presence, manifesting inner presence, nurturing inner presence, and uh, mastering inner presence kind of programs. We have, we are developing this. So some are in-person plus followed by online. So it's like a breathe in, breathe out for a year long type of things, which we are developing. And as we are developing these programs and assessments, beginning of this year, 2023, some people said, you know, India is becoming more and more dominant. India is becoming economically, technologically, uh, and uh, in the leadership, global leadership, India is going so much. So as a matter of fact, looking at Indic approach to wisdom and wisdom-based leadership, because that is primarily what uh, Indian uh, thing is about, not data-based, but wisdom-based. Wisdom does not come from external knowledge, but right. integration of values and discernment from inside connected with data and information from outside is where the wisdom comes in action. Right. So wisdom-based approach, if we are going to do that, they said, you need to really expand it and make it really big and work with B2B, like a big companies, not just individual coaches okay. and some other. So we created a framework. We said, okay, we'll work with leaders. We'll work with coaches. We'll work with... Uh, therapists and healers like psychology, Indic psychology, right. and we'll work with teachers, educators. So these four became our primary audience. And in doing so, the best way is we will develop the coach programs and we will work with various things, but we'll also do more research. So our right. research themes are like emotional intelligence is known to be very important. Coaching is all about emotional intelligence. but how do you really increase their emotional intelligence? Right. Dan Goldman and his work is fine. There are emotional regulation, you know, all of that is fine. But how do we bring an Indic angle to it? Go into Navarasas, and there are frameworks which Raghu has developed for a long period of time. We began to look at researching emotional intelligence from an Indic angle. Similarly, mindfulness is majority of the mindfulness that they got in the coaching and leadership world is from a Buddhist perspective to a certain extent. But from Yoga Sutras, you can actually expand it significantly. There is a person called Dr. Kathirasan in Singapore 
who also worked with Vedanta as well as mindfulness, he has developed some wonderful stuff. We have been looking at that as well. So we are looking at research areas of emotional intelligence, mindfulness, stress reduction and healing, especially after the COVID and with all the wars and all of them. How do we deal with that? And how do we educate children in the with the, so much of technology, attention deficit disorder, phones, iPads, distractions everywhere? How do we develop their inner presence? You know, and uh, innovation because that becomes extremely important. So these became the research areas. So we are not only doing research in that, but we are actually going to partner and some of them we might even fund other university researchers and professors to develop Indic psychology, looking at some of these type of things. So they said we need to raise big money for it if we need to. But for the time being, instead of raising the big money, we decided we will work with companies right. and uh, ask them. We are a non-profit. We, you know, we created something called the Institute of Indic Wisdom in okay. United States. It's a 501c3 organization. In India also, it's a 501c3. I mean, equivalent Section 8 or whatever. It's part of Indic Academy, which is a non-profit. Right. So, so we said, all right, we will work with some companies. We will do some coaching. We will work with their organizational design. We will do some programs and help them to become very successful because they will give us case studies and they will give us capabilities to write about them as you know, success uh, examples from Indic approach. So right. one company, one gentleman, Ved Krishna, who had attended my programs in 2015 and who had been after me for a while, he said, oh, sir, I would love for you to experiment with my company. So his company was Paka Limited and it was a paper making company. He right. had, he lives in US now and he had dreams of, you know, creating sustainable containers, not just the paper, but packaging products, which are coming out of bagage and coming out of other things. He had some fantastic, uh, uh, you know, factory in Ayodhya. He wanted me to help. And so for past 10 months, myself and Sai Sampaji and Raghu, all the three of us are involved with. And uh, in working with them, they are growing. They have another project, which is the same size as their current revenues. And now they are expanding into Guatemala with four times the size of their current wow. project. You know, they're talking about being a billion dollar, uh, you know, market cap in next five years. So. We are working with them and, they, you know, we are actually, as I'm talking to you, my colleagues, Raghu and uh, uh, Saiji are working with the executive team on some of the things today program right now. So I work with wow. the founder, CEO on a coaching basis right. and uh, each of us do variety of them. So like that, uh, there are now companies, there are uh, other kinds of companies who are reaching out to us both in India and in the United States, saying, can you help us? Can you work with us to take it forward? So we are going, that is the way in which they will give us some donations that will support our uh, projects yeah. in India. Similarly, in the United States, we are doing some coach programs. We are doing some other kinds of things. And we are working with one or two small companies to help them develop 
their capabilities through our coaching and through our approach so that we will have case studies for research as well as articles and some of them. And we are also looking at partnering with some big organizations which are in mindfulness or some other things and fund some research. I have been writing lots of articles on LinkedIn, almost 40 articles we wrote in past six months which are related to some of these, you can go to iaw.org.in or Prasad Kaipa, if you look up any of them, you'll find a lot of these materials. So we are in the, should we say, as an institute, this the first year is coming to an end, but we have research plans, working with companies, working with coaches and leaders to take it much further. That is our dream and that's where we are going. Got it, Prasad. Prasad, uh, thank you so much uh, for your time and uh, walking us through all that you've done and uh, all that you have plans to do. And I wish you all the very best. And uh, yeah, it was it was a delight and a pleasure talking to you and great fun as well to learn about some of the things. Your early 90, 90s and that journey was very, very, you know, it was a pleasure to hear all those stories. So thank you. Thank you so much, Prasad. Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by Edison OS, a no-code edtech platform to operate an online education business. Knowledge entrepreneurs can use Edison OS to sell online courses from their own websites, manage online masterclasses, launch mobile learning apps, sell online practice tests for competitive exams, run online learning communities, digitizing their offline tutoring business, use it as a learning management system, and a lot more cases in the domain of knowledge commerce.